Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. Dude, I hope you are doing well. I hope life's going good. Fall's coming here in just a little bit. Let's jump in. Today, we're going to talk about Doctrine and Covenants 94 through 97. So first, right off the bat, let's just say Doctrine and Covenants 94 chronologically is out of order. Early manuscripts show that Doctrine and Covenants 94 is actually the last part of the revelation that becomes Doctrine and Covenants 97. So the date uh, given in May uh, instead of August, it appears to be an error. So we're going to follow that original historical order here, and we're going to go 95, 96, 97, then back to 94. But first, let's just go through a little bit of history. I don't know if you remember or not, but you remember Parley P. Pratt? Like, Parley P. Pratt's living in Ohio. He decides to sell his farm and go preach the gospel. He had been a member of Sidney Rigdon's congregation, and that congregation were more or less part of Alexander Campbell's disciple movement, this Reformed Baptist movement. And so Parley P. Pratt's long-suffering wife, thankful, she goes along for the ride. She sells the farm and packs up with him. And they ride together on the Erie Canal back towards New York. But as he's riding on the Erie Canal, he gets prompting, uh, prompted by the Spirit to get off of the canal. And he just starts preaching. And in the course of his preaching, he comes across the Book of Mormon and loves it. And because he loves it so much, he tracks down Hiram Smith hears the story of the restoration, loves that, and finally finds Oliver Cowdery, who um, he's like, okay, I'm all in. And Oliver Cowdery baptizes Parley P. Pratt. Parley P. Pratt goes off and converts his family. And finally, as a member of the church for about six weeks, he meets Joseph, and Joseph receives a revelation commanding Parley to join up with Oliver on a mission to the Native American populations that lived just west of Missouri in what was then called the Indian Territory. So along the way on their mission, they stopped in Parley's hometown of Kirtland. And his former pastor, Sidney Rigdon, and hundreds of others, um, many of them massively important people to the Restoration, joined the church. So after joining the church, Sidney travels to New York and began to help Joseph with the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. And when they come to Genesis chapter 5, they receive this huge revelation known as Moses in the Pearl of Great Price. And in this revelation, they learn more about the concept of Zion, how there is a group of dedicated disciples gathered together uh, so that they can create this sort of faith synergy where people are united, righteous, and equal. And together, they can build up this momentum to make themselves heavenly. And and Joseph and Sidney and the other saints, they want this. But at the time this revelation is received, there are members scattered from Kirtland to Palmyra to Fayette to Colesville to Harmony, the, these little independent pockets of members, and they need to gather together to get more power. John Whitmer puts it this way in the record. He says, The Lord unfolded the prophecy of Enoch, uh, that's in the book of Moses, uh, Moses 7, right? Uh, and after they had written this prophecy, he's talking about Joseph Smith translation, the book of Moses and Joseph and Sidney. The Lord spoke to them again and gave them further directions. Now, these further directions are what we've already done in Doctrine and Covenants 37, where it says, Behold, I say unto you that it is not expedient in me that you should translate any more until you shall go to the Ohio. And this because of the enemy and for your sakes. Verse 3, And again, a commandment I give unto the church that it is expedient in me that they should assemble together at the Ohio against the time that my servant Oliver Cowdery shall return unto them. 
So basically, God, God is saying, go to Ohio. And then later in section 38, he says, if you go to Ohio, you're going to be endowed with power on high. Hinting at some of the temple blessings to come, hinting at the power of gathering together as saints and the synergy that can happen as faithful people are together. So the saints living in Colesville, New York, uh, willingly left their homes to gather in Kirtland. But when they arrived in Ohio in mid-May 1831, they found out that the land that had been set aside for them was no longer available. So the prophet takes the plight of the saints to the Lord in prayer, and he had just received a revelation directing himself, Sidney Rigdon, and about 28 other elders to go on a proselyting mission to Missouri. That's Doctrine and Covenants 52. And so in the, this revelation that the Lord receives for the Colesville saints, the Lord instructs the Colesville saints to journey into the land of Missouri. That's Doctrine and Covenants 54. And so they, they take off, right? And Joseph uh, talks about this in a newspaper uh, editorial a couple years later. He says, Having received by a heavenly vision a commandment, Doctrine and Covenants 52, in June 1831 to take my journey to the western boundaries of the state of Missouri and there designate the very spot which was to be the central spot for the commencement of the gathering together of those who embrace the fullness of the gospel. I accordingly undertook the journey and certain ones of my brethren, and after a long and tedious journey, suffering many privations and hardships, I arrived in Jackson County, Missouri. And so basically, Joseph is mindful of some of the prophecies of Isaiah and others for the coming of Zion. And so he asks, when will the wilderness blossom as a rose? And when will Zion be built up in the glory? Where will the temple stand unto the nations that shall come in the last days? So he's like, okay, I know the Bible talks about Zion and I know it talks about it flourishing. We're getting people that are coming here to Missouri. They're gathering together. What do we need to do next to move this forward? And so the Lord gives Doctrine and Covenants 57 as a, a re result. And he says, Hearken, O you elders of my church, saith the Lord, who have assembled yourself together according to my commandments in this land, which is the land of Missouri, which is the land I have appointed and consecrated for the gathering of the saints. Wherefore, this is the land of promise and the place for the city of Zion. And thus saith the Lord your God, If you will receive wisdom, here is wisdom. Behold, the place which is now called Independence is the center place, and a spot for the temple is lying westward upon a lot which is not far from the courthouse. So basically, the idea is they are to build Zion in Missouri, a united society of believers who take care of one another financially through consecration, who live righteously, and they are to make worship of the Lord the center of all this by building a temple, a house of God, so that they can commune together and commune with him, and so that God will walk among them and endow them with power. So building this temple is central to building up Zion. In a similar vein, in December 1832, the Lord also commands the saints in Kirtland to build a house or a temple to him. That's commandments found there in Doctrine and Covenants 88. And so they have had this commandment to build a temple in Missouri for a couple of years now. And, um, but by June of 1833, um, six months after the command to build the Kirtland Temple and two years after the command to build the Independence Temple, neither group has made any progress in building Zion and building the temple. They just 
haven't done what the Lord has asked them to do in building these temples. So in June 1833, quote, there's a conference, a conference of high priests assembled together in Kirtland, end quote, to discuss how to keep the commandments given to build this temple in Kirtland in Doctrine and Covenants 88. And so they're like, we haven't done anything in six months here in Kirtland. We really need to move forward. So they uh, decide to um, appoint a committee to oversee the fundraising and construction. Basically, the committee is going to be Jared Carter, Hiram Smith, and Reynolds Cahoon. And so they go to work drafting a letter that's going to invite the saints to contribute. Now, Section 95 is going to grow out of this uh, meeting that's focused on how do we get the temple off the ground? How do we move forward with this? And, and basically, like, you got to remember why building a temple is so important. Back in 88, the Lord has instructed them to sanctify their lives and build a house to the Lord and call it an assembly to worship. But again, they, they haven't done this. There's no progress. So the Lord's pretty severe here. He says in 95.1 about their lack of progress, both in Kirtland and in Independence. He says, Verily thus saith the Lord unto you whom I love. And that sounds nice, right? And then this line. And whom I love, I also chasten. And if you're not familiar, chasten means to castigate or to, to reprimand severely. So he's like, I love you. So I'm going to tell you what's what. That their sins may be forgiven. For with the chastisement, I have prepared a way for deliverance in all things out of temptation. And I have loved you. Wherefore, you must needs be chastened and stand rebuked before my face. For you have sinned against me a very grievous sin in that you have not considered the great commandment in all things that I have given you concerning the building of my house. For the preparation wherewith I designed to prepare mine apostles to prune my vineyard for the last time, that I may bring to pass my strange act, that I may pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Those who are chosen have sinned a very grievous sin and that they're walking in darkness at noonday. He's like, there, there's so much more I want to give you, but you got to work with me. you got to do this. And, and then he comes to the point in verse 13. Now here is wisdom in the mind of the Lord. Let the house be built. So you haven't done anything in six months. The people in Missouri haven't done anything in two years to make this happen. And, and so God is saying, build this house. Now the saints in Kirtland get to the point. Um, uh, they, they're ready and they, they get to work. There, there's just one small problem. They technically don't own the land where they're supposed to build the temple. So this is where section 96 comes in. Shortly after um, they, 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 they get this revelation, a group of high priests meet and they're like, okay, we're going to build this temple, but how do we buy it? And part of buying it is buying a, a, a farm and a tavern owned by a guy named Peter French. Um, and so they sent a committee to ask uh, Peter French and the other farm owners around there where they want to build Zion, build this temple for the terms uh, on which these guys would be willing to sell their farms. So the committee returns with the news that the, the farms could be bought for around $11,000. And so the council decides to buy, appoints agents to negotiate the sell, and even calls elders out of the school of prophets to go raise funds uh, among the saints. They do so, the funds are raised, the farms are purchased, and this leads to another council on June 4th. 
But this council disagrees about who should be the one to take care of the French farm. Um, and so even though they disagree about who should take care of it and kind of push this temple building forward, they all agree to inquire of the Lord. And so the Doctrine and Covenants 96 is the result of this inquiry on who's going to take care of stuff. And it's pretty straightforward. 96 verse 2, Therefore let my servant Newell K. Whitney take charge of the place which is named among you, upon which I designed to build mine holy house. So Newell K. Whitney is going to take care of it. But so you see that the saints in Kirtland are starting to make progress on what the Lord wants them to do. But what about the saints in Missouri? They've been commanded to build a uh, Zion centered on the house of God, but it's been two years and they haven't done it. Parley P. Pratt's now uh, living in Missouri. He says they, they've, even, they've tried to form a school of the prophets, kind of this precursor to the temple, but they haven't started anything on the temple. Uh, about this, he says, quote, A school of elders was also organized over which I was to preside, called to preside. This class, uh, to the number of about 60, met for instruction once a week. The place of meeting was in the open air under some tall trees, in a retired place in the wilderness, where we prayed, preached, and prophesied, and exercised ourselves in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Here, great blessings were poured out, and many great and marvelous things were manifested and taught. To attend this school, I had to travel on foot, and sometimes with bare feet at that, about six miles. This I did once a week, besides, living, besides visiting and preaching in five or six branches each week. End quote. So Parley and his brethren write a letter to Joseph seeking the Lord's will concerning their school of the prophets in Missouri. And recorded, quote, In answer to our correspondence with the prophet Joseph Smith at Kirtland, Ohio, the following revelation was sent to him by us dated August 1833, end quote. Now this revelation is what's known as Doctrine and Covenants 97. And in it, the Lord says, quote, I, the Lord, am well pleased that there should be a school in Zion and also with my servant Parley P. Pratt for he abideth in me. So he's like, good job. But then he's like, but I need a temple. Verse 10, verily I say unto you that it is my will that a house should be built unto me in the land of Zion. Like we need this sacred space. We, we've talked about this in section 84 where this sacred space facilitates communion with God. And he says, like unto the pattern which I have given you. Verse 11, yea, let it be built speedily by the tithing of my people. And he's like, I get it, it will be tough, but I need, verse 13, I need it for a place of thanksgiving for all saints and a place of instruction for all those who are called to the work of the ministry and all their several callings and offices, that they may be perfected in the understanding of their ministry in theory and principle and in doctrine and in all things pertaining to the kingdom of God on the earth, the keys of which kingdom have been conferred upon you. So please, I need you, verse 8, he says, to observe your covenants by sacrifice. Yea, every sacrifice which I, I, the Lord, command you, build this temple. And if you do, verse 15, my glory shall rest upon it. My presence shall be there, for I will come into it. And all the pure in heart shall come and shall see God. And now, verse 18, behold, if Zion do these things, right? If you build a temple, if you get started, if you come together, she shall prosper and spread herself and become very glorious and very great uh, and very terrible. And the nations of the earth shall honor her 
and shall say, Surely Zion is the city of our God, and surely Zion cannot fall, neither be moved out of her place, for God is there, and the hand of the Lord is there. Zion, rejoice while all the wicked shall mourn. Nevertheless, Zion shall escape if she observe to do all things whatsoever I have commanded her. But if she observe not to do whatsoever I commanded her, meaning build a temple, build Zion, that sort of thing, I will visit her according to all her works. With sore affliction, with pestilence, plague, with sword and vengeance and a devouring fire. So, like basically... um, if you get to work and you build a temple, like good things are going to happen. You're going to be you're going to be so excited about this. Uh, if not, like you have no promise and protection, and you're going to suffer the consequence of having no protecting hand over you. Okay, and, and oh yeah, this this goes for you in Kirtland too. Back in ninety four verse one, and again, verily I say unto you, my friends, a commandment I give unto you: they shall commence a work of laying out and preparing and beginning a foundation of the city of the stake of Zion here in the land of Kirtland, beginning at my house. So build my house. So over in Kirtland, they get it. They get to work. Right after this, June 5th, 1833, Hiram Smith goes out in a wheat field above the bluffs of the the Chagrin River, and he starts building um, the foundation for the Kirtland Temple. Soon everyone joins in to help. The, The saints consecrate funds, labor, expertise, Honestly, the, the project is just really far out of proportion to the church's like limited resources. Uh, they, they rely on the Lord's promise to give him power, um, but the economic realities are huge. They have to borrow a ton of money to finance the construction. Um, but, but to Joseph, this is huge. Richard Bushman says, beginning Kirtland, temples became Joseph's obsession. For the rest of his life, no matter the cost of the temple to himself or his people, he made plans, raised money, mobilized workers, and required sacrifice, end quote. So that's Kirtland. But those in Zion and Independence, they don't get to work. Um, and they don't build the temple. But honestly, up front, I'm going to spoiler alert, they fail. And it's not all on them. Real life gets in the way. Um, like their their efforts and failures to build Zion, I think, are, are kind of a shadow of our efforts to follow Jesus and create a new life in Christ that are sometimes equally inadequate and sometimes a failure. And sometimes the, the, there's real difficulties that make it really hard. I consider some of the real difficulties that they're dealing with in independence. As they seek to build up this holy city, this Zion, this temple to God in Jackson County, Missouri, they honestly could not have chosen a worse time. Like this time period in U.S. history, 1833 to 1836, it it actually has a title in U.S. history. It's called the Turbulent Time. It has more race riots, labor riots, and just riots than any previous time in American history. Like 1834 is straight up the most violent year to date with more riots than any other year had ever taken place. Some like really just think society is over. They, they think, remember, the United States is not that old. It's like 40 years old by this point. Some are like, well, it was a nice run, but it's game over. Part of this is because agriculture is, is kind of dying, these small town farms, and people are moving to cities to, to work. And there's this rise of cities, this rise of factories, 
and there, there's really exploitive labor practices. And so there's a scarcity to employment. And so people divide themselves along racial lines. And, and not even races, we would think about it, um, but like they're, they're thinking about it like ethnically, like if you're Italian, if you're Irish, if you're English, if you're a native here, not meaning a Native American, but meaning your grandparents were here a little longer than these new immigrants, that's how they divide themselves. And there's the, this really big, clear divide between these groups with really violent gang warfare on the streets of New York and other places, like real life, just crazy stuff going on, okay? And th there's this rise up uh, of like the this American movement, like we're more American than you new immigrants, this sort of idea. And there's also this huge rise of vigilante movements where they don't re wait for the, the cops or the judges to take care of things or the law to take care of things. But instead, if somebody needs to um, be taken care of, they take care of it, right? Tar and feather people, run people out on a rail, these things you've heard about, lynch individuals, uh, burn their houses, destroy things. Like if you don't like somebody, you take it into your own hands. There's also during this time period, a, a huge fear of abolitionists and slave revolts. Some of this um, fear is driven not only because you're holding a whole group of people in bondage and well, they should be free and you feel that naturally, but also it's fueled by a guy named Nat Turner. Nat Turner uh, is this spiritual visionary and in 1831, he has a vision that he believes will lead to the freedom of slaves and so he leads a rebellion and during the course of this rebellion, they massacre 51 white individuals. Unfortunately for him and his rebellion, the white individuals nearby have a lot more firepower. They put down the revolt and rebellion and they massacre nearly 200 black slaves in retribution. The, the South is basically on a war footing because of this. Sometimes Andrew Jackson during this time period has to call out the army to start this, stop the, the, the riots and the gang wars that are going on in the street. It's violent times, okay? And then so, like, they're trying to create Zion in the, the midst of this, this really turbulent time. Adding to this, they, they honestly probably couldn't have had God assign them a more difficult place to create Zion, honestly. Now, Missouri becomes a state in 1820. Um, all states, uh, all slave states previously had been uh, under the, the 3630 parallel line. But to keep the balance in the Senate in 1820, Maine was admitted as a free state and Missouri is admitted as a slave state to keep the balance between the free and slave states. And so the, the, the individuals that come to Missouri come as slave owners. Most of these individuals are the younger sons of Kentucky, Tennessee, and Virginia planters. They're not going to inherit the plantations of their dads. So they come to buy cheap land in Missouri and improve it um, on the labor of their slaves and get rich. They are there for one purpose only, to get rich on slave labor, to, to build their economic kingdom. Now, I kind of think you can, you can tell a lot about a place by who they choose to name their place after. You can tell a lot about the individuals li living there. And you remember, the, this county is called Jackson County. It's named after Andrew Jackson. 
the Indian fighting, trail of terrors, tears creating, slave owning Andrew Jackson. His nickname is Old Hickory. And the people living here on the frontier of Missouri see themselves as just as hardcore as Andrew Jackson. Um, that just a, as prejudiced against the Native Americans with just as hard feelings. And they're slave owners just like him. They're, they're intending to get rich off the, the labor of their slaves just like him. They also see themselves as the thin line separating sim- civilization and, in their words, savagery. The, the, the Native American populations that have been forcibly relocated just to the west of Missouri, they, they feel like in Missouri that they are the ones keeping the line and keeping um, this um, savagery, in their words, from spilling over. Then you get members of the Church of Jesus Christ showing up And the first thing they try to do is fraternize with the enemy. They go over and try and convert and preach to the Native American populations. And they're not here to get rich. Instead, they're here to live the law of consecration. And most of them are Yankees who are against slavery and who have even baptized black people into their church. But they themselves are are white and they're male and so they can vote. In just 18 months, 1,200 members of the church move in and drastically change the political landscape. And dude, I'm telling you, Zion and Jackson County are incompatible. Like the capitalism versus Zion, slave owning versus free, uh, preaching to the Indians versus um, separating from them. Like everything about these cultures is a massive clash. And finally, after a couple of years, the people of Jackson County have had enough uh, of it. And so they do what people all over America are doing at this point. When somebody undesirable, undesirable is in your neighborhood, you band together and you um, resolve to drive them from your place. And so that's just what they do. On Saturday, July 20th, 1833, between 400 and 500 Missouri citizens meet at the courthouse in Independence and they have a committee draft a document demanding that all church members leave the county. This is just crazy to us. So you imagine like your neighbors don't like you, so they all like sign a petition that you need to leave the neighborhood. Like that, <laughs> you're like, uh, I bought this house. You can take a hike. But they also in this committee demand that the church newspaper stop publication. Now, the reason this is the case is because... Um, because of some newspaper publications that W.W. Phelps has wrote. Basically, we don't have a lot of black members of the church at this point, but we do have some. And as individuals are seeking to gather in Missouri, W.W. Phelps is just like, dude, be smart if you're black and you're coming to, to Missouri. This is a slave state. And he just says this, quote, So long as we have no special rule in the church as to people of color, let prudence guide. End quote. So, like... They, he's just saying, like, be smart if you come here. However, um, the, the, the citizens of Missouri see this as an invitation to, for free black individuals to come here, to start slave uprisings. Like, they're, they're not happy about this. So Independence Town leaders, leaders of the mob, then meet with Bishop Edward Partridge, who's kind of the presiding authority out there, and demands that um, W.W. Phelps stops printing the Evening and Morning Star and that the Saints leave the county immediately. But shutting down the the publication of the printing press is going to delay publication of the Book of Commandments, which we know as the Doctrine and Covenants, and it's almost finished. 
And leaving the county, it means losing some valuable property that they purchased, that they owned. But also to them, it's deeper than that. Giving up on the land is like giving up on God. It's giving up on this idea of Zion. It's giving up on building heaven on earth. And they're like, no, we can't do this. But Edward Partridge tries to be, um, I don't know, how, how do you say? He tries to negotiate a little bit. Remember, there, there's no telephone. There's no telegraph at this time. If somebody wants to communicate with Joseph, who's almost a thousand miles away, it's going to take months of fast travel. And so he, Edward Partridge asks for three months so that he can send a message to Joseph and then talk to them more. And they're like, no, straight up no. He's like, just give us 10 days that we can talk about it. And they're like, you have 15 minutes. And, and Edward's like, I can't make it this decision in 15 minutes. And so they're like, so be it. And that's when things get violent. The mobs break out in independence and they take matters into their own hands. They go to the, the um, W.W. Phelps's house and the, the printing press is on the, the second floor. And the mobs use a large log to straight battery ram down the door where Sally Phelps is there caring for her sick infant and her four other small children. Like how brave of you to use a battering ram on a, on a woman caring for a sick child here, honestly. Armed men drag her and the children out to the street and then they start literally to tear the building apart by the with their bare hands. They throw the, the press from the, the second story window. They, they start breaking it to pieces and they literally start just like demolitioning that, the, the, the place here like it's demo day. As they destroy things, they throw loose pages of the almost complete book of commandments, the Doctrine and Covenants out on the road saying, here's the book of revelations of the damned Mormons. Well, two young uh, Latter-day Saints are watching this happen. You got 15-year-old Mary Elizabeth Rollins and 13-year-old sister Caroline. And Mary's like, we need to save this book. And Caroline's like, are you dumb? Like, like honestly, picture yourself as a 15-year-old and 13-year-old girl. And you got grown men with weapons legitimately tearing down a building with a, uh, their bare hands. And you want to go piss them off more. Caroline's like, stop being stupid. But uh, Mary's like, I'm doing it. So Mary <laughs> Mary runs out and grabs the, the book when the, the men's, um, pit, the men's um, backs are turned. Caroline follows, grabs as many pages as she can. And then they start to run off. As they run off, two men from the mob try to stop them and chase them. And so the girls run into a cornfield. That's not how every horror movie ever written starts um, being chased into a cornfield. So they're running through the cornfield. As the men approach, the girls lay down on their bellies over the, the Book of Commandments. And they just try to be as quiet as can be. The guys get closer and closer, but fortunately they can't find them. And so the girls just lay there for hours till it gets dark. Meanwhile, the, the mob um, marches Edward Partridge and a new convert named Charles Allen to the town square and tar and feather them. They basically say, you need to leave or face the consequences. And Edward Partridge just is straight up. He's like, if I must suffer for my religion, it is no more than others have done before me. As the, the tar is over him, he says it burns like acid. And then the members of the mob just say that this is only a beginning of how we're going to come at you. Now, Sally Phelps no longer has a home for her small children. So she takes her kids to an abandoned log stable next to a cornfield and has her kids start gathering brush so they can have beds for the night. 
As the night approaches, she sees two girls coming out of the cornfield with the manuscripts pages that they've rescued. They recognize Sally as W.W. Phelps' wife, give her charge of the manuscripts, and then they go off and find their parents. Crazy day, right? Well, three days later on July 23rd, the mob appears again in Jackson County. This time they're armed with rifles, pistols, whips, and clubs, and they just start setting fire to people's haystacks and grain fields. They even set fire to people's homes, barns, and businesses. They basically say that every man, woman, and child who's a Latter-day Saint is going to be whipped until the leaders consent to leave the county. Under this devastating violence and pressure, uh, the leaders of the church sign an agreement to leave Jackson County. Basically, the agreement says that all the leaders will go away by January 1st, 1834, and the rest would leave by next spring, April 1st, 1834. And so the Latter-day Saints are distraught by this. They they're send out uh, messages for help from Joseph Smith, and we'll talk about that in coming lessons. But unfortunately for the members in Jackson County, the mob doesn't wait till January like agreed. On October 31st, Halloween, the mobs begin to return. They start unroofing houses. Now, basically, this isn't uh, too difficult. They're log cabins, right? And so they they can hitch a, they can tie ropes um, to horses um, to the supporting log beam on the roof, and they can give it a good pop, and it comes off. And then suddenly, it's the middle of the Midwest in the uh, approaching winter. Um, November, right? November is right here and it's freezing and you don't have a house. Any men that they they catch, they whip and beat mercilessly. They chase women and children into the woods. And and it just continues day after day. On November 2nd, the mob breaks into David Bennett's house. He should have ran, but he's too sick in bed to leave. So instead, they beat the crap out of this sick man in bed and then they shoot him in the head. Fortunately, he survives. The bullet creases a deep gash in his head, but he's okay. The persecution continues. By the 5th and the 6th, there is basically a herd of about 150 women and children that they're herding out on the prairie without food or shelter. There's no men with them because any men that try and come at them, basically, the the mob will take shots at and beat if they can catch them. Parley P. Pratt talks about the experience. He says, In short, every member of society was driven from the county. Fields of corn were plundered and destroyed, stacks of wheat were burned, household goods plundered, and every kind of property lost. And at length, no less than 203 houses burned, according to the estimate of their own own people in Jackson. Whew! So there's Zion for you. Um, I don't know if we can say that's anything less than a failure. Now, there is an element that they did not live up uh, to their end of the bargain. They did not build the temple. They did not do what God asked them to do to build Zion to get the required protection. But honestly, I can relate to them. I have no judgment here. I feel like I do this all the time. We do this all the time. We try, but we fall short. We fail. Dude, I'm straight up like, the wet bandits trying to get into Kevin's house on home alone when it comes to my Christianity sometimes. So here's my question. Was it all for nothing? Was the commandment to build Zion in Missouri for nothing? 
if I if I'm sucking it up trying to be a Christian, if I repeatedly fall at, at my discipleship, does that mean I should just quit trying? Um, like like we we say, I'm never gonna I'm never gonna create Zion in my life. I'm never gonna be a Christian. I'm gonna just pack it in. I don't know about that, man. Maybe consider this parable. And it's not necessarily a religious parable, but I think it's appropriate to this idea of trying and failing. It's actually comes from Brandon Sanderson. You know I love me some Brandon Sanderson. It comes from his his book, The Rhythm of War. And it's a parable from wit to Kaladin. Now, if you haven't read it yet, don't worry. I'm not going to spoil anything. Um, And those of you who like Brandon Sanderson will like this even more. But just, I want you to consider this in the context of Christianity and becoming like Jesus, in the context of building Zion in our own lives and failing at it. The story is called The Dog and the Dragon. It goes like this. One day, the dog saw a dragon flying overhead. The dog marveled as one might expect. He had never seen anything so majestic or grand. The dragon soared in the sky, shimmering with iridescent colors in the sunlight. When it curved around and passed above the dog, it called out a mighty challenge, demanding in the human tongue that all acknowledge its beauty. Now, he wasn't a particularly large dog. Um, He was white with brown spots and floppy ears, not of any specific breed or lineage, and small enough that the other dogs often mocked him. He was a common variety of a common species of a common animal that most people would rightfully ignore. But when this dog stared at the dragon and he heard the mighty boast, he came to a realization. Today, he had encountered something he'd always wished for but never known. Today, he'd seen perfection and he'd been presented with a goal. Zion. From today, nothing else mattered. He was going to become a dragon. The dog sat on the hilltop through the entire night and day, staring, thinking, dreaming. Finally, he returned to the farm where he lived among the others of his kind. These farm dogs all had jobs chasing livestock, guarding the perimeter, but he, as the smallest, was seldom, seldom given a duty. Perhaps to, any, uh, to another, this would be liberating to him. It had always been humiliating. But he was going to be a dragon. A big t- ask for sure, but as with any problem... It is merely a series of smaller problems. So he divided his goal of becoming a dragon into three steps. First, he would find a way to have colorful scales like a dragon. Second, he would learn to speak in the language of men like the dragon. Third, he would learn to fly like a dragon. The dog chose the scales first, as it seemed the easiest, and he wanted to begin his transformation with an early victory. He knew the farmer owned many seeds in a variety of colors, and they were the shape of little scales. The little dog walked to the barn and found the farm sorting through bags of seeds. Because he was not a thief, the dog did not take these, but he asked the other animals where the farmer obtained new seeds. It turned out the farmer could make seeds by putting them in the ground, waiting for the plants to grow and then taking more seeds from the stalks. Knowing this, the dog borrowed some seeds and did the same, accompanying the farmer's eldest son to the daily work. As the youth worked, the dog moved alongside him, digging holes for seeds with his paws, planting them carefully with his mouth, 
and then he went out each day gripping a water can in his teeth to water each seed just as the farmer did. He learned to weed and to fertilize, and eventually the dog was rewarded with his own small crop of colorful seeds. After replacing what he'd borrowed from the farmer, the dog got himself wet and rolled in his seeds, sticking them all over his body. Then he presented himself to the other dogs. Do you admire my wonderful new scales? He asked his fellow animals. Do I not look like a dragon? And they, in turn, laughed at him. Those are not scales, they said. You look stupid and you look silly. Go back to being a dog. And he honestly had to admit he did look silly covered in seeds. So he slunk away feeling foolish and hurt. He'd failed at his first task to have scales like a dragon. The dog, however, was not daunted. Surely, if he could speak with the grand voice of a dragon, they would all see the truth. And so the dog spent his free time watching the children of the farmer. There were three, the eldest son who helped in the fields, the middle daughter who helped with the animals, and the toddler who was too young to help but was learning to speak. Anyway, the dog figured that the best way to learn the language of men was to study the youngest child. So the dog played with the baby, stayed with him, and listened as he began to form words. The dog played with the daughter too, helped her with the yard work, and he soon found he could understand her if he tried hard. But he couldn't form words. He tried so hard to speak as they did, but his mouth could not make the kind of speech. His tongue did not work like a human tongue. Eventually, while watching the tall and serious daughter, he noticed that she could make words of humans on paper. The dog was overjoyed by this. It was a way to speak without having a human tongue. The dog joined her at the table where she studied inspecting the letters as she made them, and he failed many times. But eventually he learned to scratch the letters in the dirt himself. The farmers and the family thought this was an amazing trick. The dog was sure he had found a way to prove he was becoming a dragon. He returned to the other dogs in the field and showed them his writing ability by writing their names in the dirt. They, however, could not read the words. When the dog explained that he was writing, they laughed. This is not the loud, majestic voice of a dragon, the dog said. This is speaking so quietly, nobody can hear it. You look silly and stupid. Go back to being a dog. And they left the dog to stare at his writing. As rain began to fall, washing the words away, he realized they were correct. He had failed to speak with the proud and powerful voice of a dragon. But there was still hope. If the dog could just fly, if he could achieve this feat, the dogs would have to acknowledge his transformation. This task seemed even harder than the previous two. However, the dog had seen a curious device in the barn. The farmer would tie bales of hay with a rope, then raise or lower them using a pulley in the rafters. This was essentially flying, was it not? The bales of hay soared in the air. And so the dog practiced pulling on the rope himself and learned the mechanics of the device. He found that the pulley could be balanced with a weight on the other side, which made the bales of hay lower slowly and safely. The dog took his leash, tied it around him to make a harness like the ones that wrapped in the hay. He tied a, a sack slightly lighter than he was to the rope, creating a weight to balance him. 
and after using his mouth to tie the rope to his harness, he climbed to the top of the barn's loft and called for the other dogs to come in. When they arrived, he leaped gracefully off the loft, and it worked. He was lowered down slowly, striking a magnificent pose in the air. He was flying! He soared like the dragon had! He felt the air around him and he knew the sensation of being up high and with everything below him when he landed he felt so proud and so free. And then the other dogs laughed at him, the loudest they had ever laughed. That is not flying like a dragon, they said. You fell, slowly. You look stupid and silly. Go back to being a dog. This at long last crushed the dog's hope. He realized the truth. He had failed. A dog like him simply could not become a dragon. He was too small, too quiet, too silly. Later that night when he was laying down, the dog heard sounds of shouting in the distance. What was that? The dog looked up confused. He heard noises, sudden shouting, yells of panic. The dog raced out of the barn to find the farmer and his family huddled around the small farmyard well, which was barely wide enough for the bucket. The dog put his paws up on the edge of the well and looked down far below in the deep darkness of the hole. He heard crying and splashing. A pitiful, gurgling cry was barely audible over the splashing. The littlest child of the farmer and his wife had fallen in the well and was drowning. The family wept and screamed, but there was nothing to be done. They were too large to get to them. There was nothing they could do. Or was there? In a flash, the dog knew what to do. He bit the bucket off the well's rope, then had the eldest son tie the rope to his harness. He wrote, lower me in the dirt, and then hopped up on the rim of the well. Finally, he threw himself into the well as the farmer grabbed the crank, lowered down the rope, and the dog flew into the darkness. He found the baby all the way underwater, but shoved his snout in and took hold of the baby's clothing with his teeth. A short time later, when the family pulled him back up, the dog appeared holding the littlest child wet, crying, but very much alive. That night, the family set a place for the little dog at their table and gave him a sweater to keep him warm, his name written across the front with letters he could read. They served him a feast with food the dog had helped grow. They gave him a cake celebrating the birthday of the child whose life he had saved. That night it rained on the other dogs who slept outside in the cold barn which leaked. But the little dog snuggled into a warm bed beside the fire, hugged by the farmer's children, his belly full. And as he did, the dog sadly thought to himself, I could not become a dragon. I am an utter and complete failure. The End Mm. <laughs> How do you like that ending? Do you agree? Is he an utter and complete failure? Should you, because you struggle across the uh, uh, along the path of Christianity, pack it in and quit? I, I don't know. I don't think you should quit. In the story, back to the story, back to Brandon Sanderson, the main character who's listening to the story. His name's Khaled, and he says, Can you tell me the real ending before I go back? Wit continues, and he says, That night, said the, uh, he said, 
The little dog snuggled into a warm bed beside the fire, hugged by the farmer's children, his belly full. And as he did, the dog thought to himself, I doubt any dragon ever had it so good anyway. All right. Think about Zion. Think about you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.